Chapter Twelve of Miss Ingelis by Gertrude Hall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter Twelve. Jessie Black and the other men of the family, Red excepted, betook themselves to business in the morning, democratically, by the streetcar. Red drove to it in a shining buggy drawn by a sleek black mare named Kate, which a spruce young negro named Sam brought to the door punctually at half-past eight. Red took a man's delight in Kate, her glossy coat, her long, free stride. Often, after an early dinner, which Grace and he, escaping from the intrusive crowd, had by themselves at a hotel or a club, he would take her driving behind Kate. The days were long and pleasant, the suburbs in flower. The country had that freshness of green which marks the last of May and the first of June. Nothing gave Grace so much delight as those rides, with their miles and miles of sunset, twilight, moon or starlight, glimpses of ponds, low hills, happy homes, all bathed in poetic evening haze. In the easy silence that fell on them, her love of nature took turns with the other love in lifting up her heart. They sometimes had quarrels. Claire could not always know, in the tossing of chaff that so largely formed their conversation, what he must not say. Claire was never, or seldom, vulgar when he was minded not to be. But something worldly, or cynical, or conscienceless, would now and then escape him. And then there would be the genteel prejudices of his beloved to reckon with. Grace did not find requisite for assailing him any of the courage she had needed to oppose Lydia. The poor boy was touching sometimes, watching her face for guidance as to what he must avoid touching in his willingness to take blame, anything, so as to be on happy terms again. Making up was, in fact, so sweet that it was almost worth while to quarrel. He learned from those passages that under her playfulness Grace was always serious, while she found reason to suspect that under his serious lay mockery. But if ever their differences caused the flash of a thought in her that just possibly they might not be happy together, she would say to herself, One does not marry to be happy. One marries to be together. That was it. For better. For worse. Together. In the adorable moments of making up, she knew that no faults Claire might have could be so great as the sweetness of being his love. But some of their quarrels had no reason for them, really, beyond an instinct in grace, an instinct as old as woman, to resist the domination of the strong young man into whose hand she had surrendered. That the stronger should be master was so obvious as to be inept. A different thing must be pretended for the dignity of the weaker, for the looks of the thing. She quarreled with him sometimes, fancifully, gracefully, yet with a grain of acrimony, because, merely, he was he, 
and she was she, and the Amazonian drop in her blood drove her to oppose him, bother him, put him in doubt, deny him a facile triumph. For her lover alone in all the world, the amiable girl reserved a side that was a little difficult, incalculable, and that, while keeping him guessing, kept him bewitched. On days when they were to go together to choose a feather or twig, as it were, for their joint nest, he invited her to lunch with him downtown. On the occasion of a painting to decide upon, she arrived at the great Overcome Brothers building a trifle before the hour agreed upon. The elevator flew with her to an upper floor. She passed through the ground glass door, which she was coming to know well, and which today stood a little way open. Because she could hear Claire talking to someone, and because she was early, she quietly took a seat. The revolving chair before the desk of Claire's secretary stood empty. The woman had gone out, for her lunch, probably. Claire's desk was on the farther side of hers, and Grace could not see him, or the man with whom he was engaged. Business talk being avowedly dull, she reached for the nearest book, a small blue-bound directory, and turned over the pages, but without much curiosity, to see which of her acquaintances, her art school mates, were in it. Any one of those girls meeting Grace now must have wondered at the change she would see in her, today particularly, when she was arrayed in a new dress and hat, bought to replace the fair garments which, by a costly scruple, she refused to wear after they had been traced to a source so impure as Sidney Morgan the disloyal. A dress and hat chosen with, among the dim springs of action at the back of the mind, the object of making herself as far as she might into an enchantress. The color of her dress enhanced the clearness of her cheeks. The velvety shadow of her hat brought out the soft brightness of her eyes. But more than by hat or dress, or the far greater care she took of her person, Grace was changed by a thing with which she had nothing to do. By her glance, which in these days provoked interest, oh, so much more than formerly, it had grown deeper more unreadable, and with this lovelier. She laid down her book after a time, concluding that business could not be more dry, and gave her attention to Claire's talk with this man, whom he called Quixie, while Quixie, more punctiliously, addressed him as Mr. Overcome. The tone of their unmoderated voices was, on one side, vigorous and animated, characteristically that of an overcome, on the other a shade extenuating, exculpatory. A pucker came between her eyebrows before long, and the look of an enchantress left her eyes, which grew more and more like those of Winfred Ingelis, with his pained, incurable curiosity as to what is wrong with the world, and why people gifted with reason and soul will act as they do. It was a long half-hour before the secretary came in, and, seeing Grace, slipped behind the desk to ask her employer whether he knew that Miss Inglis was waiting. In an instant, Claire came forward with a delighted smile and greeting, 
So sorry to have kept you waiting, dear. Have you been here long? Just a minute, and I'll be with you. The large, oak-brown, heavily ornate dining room to which he took her was half empty when they were shown to their little table near a window. By the time the dishes he ordered had been brought, there was but a sprinkling of people left, for it was hard upon two o'clock. They were a little more than halfway through the list of good things, chosen by him with a girl's tastes in mind, rather than his own. When it struck him that she was more silent than usual, also that she had not shown herself properly hungry, he observed her and did not fail to perceive the line between her eyebrows which made her resemble her father, though he was not aware of the latter fact or its implication. Grace, he said finally, is anything the matter? She lifted her eyes from her plate and rested them directly on him. Yes, she said after a moment. After another moment? What? he asked courageously. There was another pause, during which she was felt to screw up her courage, too. The matter is, that I was there while you were talking with Mr. Crixey. Well, he asked with flawless composure, it gave me the feeling, Claire, of listening to a stranger, an entire stranger. It came over me that you, Claire, were at bottom a stranger. Little one, he said indulgently, is it true that i don't ordinarily talk business with you wherefore there would be novelty in hearing me do it but i can see you mean more than that what exactly do you mean dear only one moment let me solemnly entreat you not to let any of the notions you have got out of books run away with you making you unfair to those who run this world in the only way it can be run well then as an attempt to be fair, listen to the idea I got of the transaction you were discussing with Mr. Quixie, and see if I have got it correctly. Will you be frank? Mr. Quixie is a kind of ancient of yours, isn't he? A kind. He's a lawyer. There stands in Chicago a row of dwelling houses, which you have been trying to buy up in order to turn them into a branch store. Quite so. You had bought them all except one, but the owners of that one asked more for it than you were willing to give. You offered twenty-five thousand. They wanted forty. Which was out of the question for a tired old building ripe to come down anyhow. Wait. You had given forty apiece for the other buildings in the same block, hadn't you? Though you only bought them to pull down. True, but that makes no difference. The others were better property. The trouble was, the owner of the house that had been standing out against us was a woman, perfectly unbusinesslike, who had some fool idea of what her house ought to fetch. We were in no particular hurry. We wouldn't come to her price. You offered her $25,000, but she wouldn't accept it. She, too, could wait. But she died, and when the affairs of her children, minors, girls, were taken in hand by the administrator, he was willing to make the sale at your figure. Quixie, your agent, before concluding the affair, came to talk it over with you. Go on. And you found explicit and emphatic fault with Mr. Quixie. 
gave Mr. Quixie a startling piece of your mind, for entertaining such a thought as that of buying the house now for the sum offered at first. Gathering that, with the breadwinner of the family removed, ruin stares those poor creatures in the face. You will give ten thousand for it, or just possibly, if the administrator turns out to be sharp enough, you will come up to twelve thousand five hundred, one half the original offer. They are to be informed that if they don't see it, you, as their old house inclines by several inches over the land you have acquired next to theirs, you will sue them, that you will, without a doubt, win your suit, when their old house will be torn down by order of the court, and the bare price of the land will be all they can hope to get. Claire, have I got this dreadful story straight? Perfectly. And, Claire, you are not ashamed? Sitting opposite, they could look squarely into each other's face. Grace's eyes were searchingly in Claire's eyes, which seemed to her, for the moment, those of an utter stranger. She had never noticed before that he, like Alec, had a cast in one eye, but, oh, very, very much slighter than Alec's. It, in truth, hardly existed at all. It had not existed, absolutely, a moment ago. She could almost have sworn. Claire's eyes were strong, of a blue that she had described as fiery, but at this point of her acquaintance with them, they were cold instead of fiery, and shut as a porcelain ball. Now, Grace, he began quietly, I ask you to be reasonable, and I ask you to be fair. Business methods are what they are. I didn't make them. This that has outraged you to the point of calling me, politely, as is your never-failing habit, a robber, is what any businessman in this city would have done in my place. Make up your mind that your schoolgirl morality doesn't apply to grown-up deals. Sentiment has no place in them. Am I in business for my health, do you think? I am in business to make money. I work hard. The simple world-old principle is to buy as cheap as you can and sell as dear. The transaction you have described was above board, perfectly. The thing is a game, my dear girl. Both sides know the rules and play accordingly. Those people wanted to do us, didn't they? They thought that if they held out, we should eventually have to pay what they asked, which is a lot more than the house is worth. And we should have had to, or give up the whole scheme. We should have paid, in that case, exactly $30,000 more than the thing was worth. They would have made a round 30000 out of us. The tables are turned. We shall serve them as they were going to serve us. Only we shan't make so much. We shall turn a poor 12500 When he stopped, Grace, who had kept her eyes fixed on his, while he talked with his unflinchingly on hers, drew her glance away, as with difficulty, and as if it ached from the strain. It fell on her plate, where she saw, as if very far away and unimportant, a mound of strawberries. Her glance slid from those, in a lost, unconscious way, to Claire's hand, where it lay on the table, pinching and releasing the stems of a pair of sugar-tongs. A fine, strong hand, heavy 
but well-shaped. She noted as having some indefinable bearing on the situation how, from the point where his powerful wrist vanished inside the wide, starched cuff, there crept forward, less and less dense, till it stopped at his knuckles, a miniature jungle of black. Her own hand lay not far from his, so fragile by its side, clenched at this moment with the stress of her mental anguish around the base of a tumbler. Little one, Claire began again, now with gentleness and protest in his voice. I wish you showed a little more confidence in me. Make up your mind. You can do so without any danger of going wrong. That I'm all right. You don't suppose a great big business like ours has been built up by crooked proceedings? If there were nothing else, it wouldn't pay. Say to yourself that, though we might all be crooks at heart, it wouldn't pay. We have our credit to uphold, our good name to guard. Come. His voice softened still more. Don't you think you've been just a little hard on me? You think in such exaggerated terms. Come now, you know I want you to have just what you want. You know I want to do what you want. Be the kind of fellow you want. But your ideas of a man have been gathered from books of poetry, I'm afraid, oh, amiable one. Come, stop thinking hard things of your beast, and pay a little attention to your strawberries. Look at me, Grace. After a moment of silent refusal, she obeyed. She was smiling. His eyes were again the eyes she knew, knew so intensely. Smile at me, Grace, he coaxed. But this she would not do. She tilted back her head in the pretty overshadowing hat that embodied a very innocent idea of an enchantress and looked at him meditatively. Grace's upper lip could curve when it pleased with a beautiful and very superior scorn. Her air of inveterate good breeding clothed her at all times in his eyes with an effect of pride. When this was turned into a frosty armor from within which she looked at him, lofty, unapproachable, the thing came near to being insufferable. It was vain to seek for the reason why those girlish gold-brown eyes of an expression so subtly different from all eyes he had so far gazed into, why that languid rose, her rather colorless but sweetly shaped mouth, affected him at this pass of his life as they did. It was vain to seek for the reason why, just so far as they were pleased to withdraw, he must insanely, insatiably pursue. Smile at me, Grace, he coaxed, still more pleadingly. What is a smile worth? She loosened the strained bow of her ironical lip to ask with a bitter inflection red overcome did not at once answer nor did he remove his eyes from hers whether he were trying to read her or offering himself to be read the silence was sufficiently long to permit the revolving of many thoughts his answer when it came fell slowly it is worth twelve thousand five hundred dollars he said and let out a great breath grace's eyelids fluttered a tide of rose color mounted to her cheeks 
the metallic hardness melted out of her eyes she looked as if on the verge of tears she looked when she had taken in his meaning as if bereft of the power of speech as for him the pleasure of his gesture was rewarding him he glowed are you in earnest claire she could not but incredulously ask when the knot in her throat untied a little do you mean that you will let those poor things have their twenty-five he nodded assent to please you and continued bending on her a smile that contained no shadow of diplomacy a glance that disclosed no duality at the return of softness in her face he had to curb the impulse to reach for her hand though all the other guests had by this time left a waiter was standing where he could keep an eye on them he murmured a word that took the place of a caress psyche at that name the tears which she had contrived to keep back forced their way into her eyes it was not as he excusably supposed his magnanimity that made her cry although that after her great alarm had brought relief so great that only the shame of being seen to weep in public had saved her from such disgrace it was that ida lamont had been the first one to call her psyche and the poignant image of that sweet friend floated before her at the sound dear and discrowned while the tears trembled on her eyelids and she strove to look as if they had not been there a wave of a different sorrow succeeded to the pang for ida lamont it was a passionate regret a veritable yearning over the yesterdays when she had believed the ideas of honour of the persons she loved to be the same as her own the strawberries were like sawdust in her mouth when to please him she tried to eat them and she did not recover that afternoon the blitheness that animated her so often when they were together she was subdued and no wonder by the burden of love and indebtedness abasement before his magnanimity contrition for her injustice he understood he was silent and serious too in sympathy so they went to the picture dealers in whose window he had seen a painting that impressed him favorably as a complimenting ornament for their dining-room he wished for the corroboration of her taste before making the purchase this he received almost too easily she was still absent-minded he feared she did not care much at the moment what pictures hung on their walls but here again he understood and did not bother her about it catching at a chance to divert her he led the way into the exhibition room where a small miscellaneous collection was hung on maroon walls under coolly showering light max and bender's exhibitions are usually very choice he encouraged her to take an interest her eyes after one vague circling glance that brushed marines sunsets snow scenes bright large fishes on a platter stopped on a selection that seemed to him at first sight nothing but queer unusual to the point of being queer his natural quickness of perception was shown by his recognition of that picture 
as the one of all in the room which his well-educated beloved would be sure to take to it represented a friar monk hermit or some such thing on his knees at the feet of a kind of spirit saint vision or ghost a spindling female in white unearthly pale ethereal he bent forward at grace's side to try to make it out what do you suppose it is he asked it is saint francis and his bride poverty she answered after a suspense that could be attributed to uncertainty oh is it he examined it more minutely grace he exclaimed with animation that white lady has a kind of look like you do you notice it what a funny coincidence who painted it nothing but initials a d that doesn't take us very far wait a moment i'll go and find out and the price i guess we'll have to have this grace she remained gazing at the picture in a wonder that affected her heartbeats they had slowed and thickened they seemed to burn she decided with very little weighing of the question not to reveal the fact that she was acquainted with the painter it would infallibly be supposed that he had been in love with her claire came back disappointed too bad it's by a young artist named dane the man says it's not for sale End of chapter 12